Dan, we are in a new era of conduct detrimental. At the end of last week's episode, Stephanie, our own Stephanie, she gave, uh, you know, kind of like an impassioned shout out to Themis. She'd just taken the bar, speaking from the heart. Themis is the greatest. So, I, you know, Dan, I have some fun. Sometimes I go off the cuff a little bit. And truthfully, I did reach out to the Cleveland Guardians, the roller derby team. I said, do you want to sponsor the podcast? And, you know, they, they didn't say yes. They didn't say no. But they said, you know, can't really speak right now. Barracuda Championship, the PGA Tour event. I said, if you guys want to sponsor the podcast, you can. And I, you know what, Dan, because I like to have some fun here. I said, hey, Themis, Stephanie just shouted you out. If you guys want to sponsor us, that's cool, too. First one to reach out to us wins. And, Dan, guess what? Our little proverbial fish hook, we got a bite, Dan. We got a sponsor. Themis Bar Review is now an official sponsor of Conduct Detrimental. How about that, Dan? A very smart business decision by a Bar Review prep course to recognize the fact that we have so many law students that comprise our audience. I think it's a natural partnership, given that we have so many law students who listen to our program. So I'm excited about having our first sponsor. It's about, it's about time. And it was inevitable that a Bar Review prep course would want to tap into this great audience, many of whom are going to be sitting for the bar exam in the years ahead. So congratulations, Themis, on becoming our first sponsor. I look forward to a mutually beneficial relationship, and I really thank Themis for taking a chance on us. Shout out to Themis. Shout out to Stephanie. If Stephanie passes the bar, again, it's all because of Themis. Themis is great. Themis is good. And uh, you know what, Dan? I don't care about any of the other bar prep companies. I think Themis is the smartest one out there because they realize we have the pulse of Sports Law Nation. We have, we have uh, law schools, law students across the country listening to the show. So shout out to Themis for being ahead of the game. Now, that said, just as a programming note, if you were tuning in just for the sports betting aspect of the story, check the show notes. We have exactly where that section starts. But we're going to talk a little bit about the conductdetrimental.com website era, and then we'll get into the fun stuff. But again, just check the show notes if you want to skip directly to our segment with Ryan Butler. Moving on to some rest hacks over here. You know, we have a we have a guest that we're going to bring on. That's Ryan Butler over the Action Network. Uh, we've had Darren Ravel on our show before. Same company, Action Network. Those guys are really at the forefront of all things sports betting and legislation. But before we do that, Dan, kind of a special uh, occasion for us. This is about a month into the ConductDetrimental.com era. And we keep kind of alluding to how good everything's going. You know, Dan, a belated happy birthday to you. I know it was your birthday over the weekend. And shout out to Mike with a nice kind of birthday post to you. In less than 30 days, ConductDetrimental.com has had over 25,000 hits. And it's not just New York. It is an international website. We had an article go viral in Japan, of all places, with our Shohei Otani article. This is truly an international website. So, you know, I want to spend at least the first part of the podcast talking about two of our, maybe our big highlights. 25,000 is a lot, but it doesn't happen without some real kind of pointed references and, and a lot of fortuitous action. So, I don't know, Dan, but I guess before we get into it, how's your birthday? Well, uh, I'm in like week number like 40 now in Siberia. I've been here since the end of the year. I had a great, great birthday. My wife, Natalia, cooked up a nice spa day for me and her. So we had massages and, you know, sauna, steam room. It was just a terrific birthday. But I am itching to come home very soon. I know we do this podcast over the internet, but I couldn't be any further away than I am right now. And I'm hoping to get back into Florida by the end of October, early November, and it will almost be a full year in Siberia, but I certainly haven't missed anything you know, in the sports law world. The one advantage to being here, Dan, and you might be able to appreciate this in terms of breaking stories, we're 11 hours ahead. So I have basically an 11 hour head start 
on the rest of the East Coast of the United States. But on the flip side, on the other end of the spectrum, I have to go to sleep by you know, 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., which is late for me, but it's only 2 p.m. on the East Coast. And guess what happened on Friday? I missed by five minutes the breaking of the news about the United States Secretary of the Interior signing off and approving through no action the sports betting compact for the state of Florida. That's a story I've been following for months. And by virtue of being in Siberia, I had to go to bed and it happened to be roughly five to 15 minutes before the news actually broke. So nope. you win some, you lose some. And you and I have been doing this podcast for over a year. You and I have actually only met in person one time. That was at the Fordham Sports Law Symposium back in about 2012, 2013. And I don't even remember you. I, well, Dan, no, that's not true. <laughs> but here's, here's my birthday present to you, Dan. I am going to let you and Ryan talk about sports betting for as long as you want. You guys can go almost an hour. I am going to let it happen. It's that big of a story. And, uh, yeah. but yeah, let's, let's, we'll save that for when you, for your conversation. Well, you, you, know, you know what? Talking about meeting in person, I have a great idea. Now that our sports law community has, has grown by leaps and bounds, we've had over 60 articles published on our website. 60. In, within the, 60. Try 75, Dan. This keeps multiplying. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's up to 75. So uh, our project of creating uh, writing opportunities for lawyers and law students, I mean, this is a passion project. I've never, ever earned a dime from Conduct Detrimental, writing for Forbes. Maybe I've been paid a little bit writing for The Athletic, but we're so passionate about this area of the law that we wanted to create or open it up for other lawyers and law students to kind of create opportunities for them to be visible and to carve out a little space for themselves. And I got to tell you, we have such a, a large group of writers and, and supporters of Conduct Detrimental. I think we're coming to the point where we need to have an, on, an annual conference. And then maybe you and I will finally meet for the first time since Fordham Law School. I have an idea. It's called, we'll call it Conduct Con. Okay. What do you think? Two kids under the age of two, Dan, if this is going to, if we're going to do it, it's going to have to be very big, but I can't even think about it right now because I'm not sleeping. Okay. Two kids oh. under the age of two. Well, congratulations on that. Maybe we'll hold it in Westchester Maybe. just to make the drive easier for you. Maybe. Or we can just do it via Zoom and then I could sit here in my uh, pajamas and that would actually be fine. Okay. So let, let, let us give a, a couple shouts here. So we, Dan, I think, you know, we, again, you've been doing this since 2016. I joined you, uh, you know, in the middle of uh, last year. Um, I think arguably the biggest shout out that we've ever gotten occurred over the weekend. The story that we're going to focus on really quick is this Omar Vizcal lawsuit. If you don't know Omar Vizcal. He's a former Major League Baseball great shortstop for the Cleveland Indians. Now the Cleveland Guardians, but we're not talking about that story. Don't worry. He was a manager for the double-A Birmingham Barons, which is a Chicago White Sox team. So it's very funny, Dan. It's just kind of a sports law coming, you know, uh, 180 degrees. Friends of the podcast, Katie Strang and Evan Drellick, were covering this story. We're covering Omar Vizquel, who had a kind of a litigation incident. And they're both at the Athletic, both national reporters. Um, they were both covering this, you know, in terms of this. It was a domestic incident involving Omar Vizquel and his wife. And this incident, at least there was some smoke about it in 2019. And Major League Baseball was not talking about what actually happened in the investigation, but it seemingly was unresolved. So Jason Morin, who works at my office at Garagos and Garagos and is just a sports law junkie, he's into all these stories, has been looking for news and update on the story for some time. And what do you know, Dan, speaking of Friday late breaking stories, Jason saw there was an update on this lawsuit. So he reached out to me. He goes, is anyone covering this? And I go, not that I can tell, Jason. If you want to write a story on this, 
you put it out, you write it in your own words. I will get it to our friends of the show. I will get it to the Katie Strangs. I will get it to the Evan Drellicks. And then Dan, I have some friends in some high places. Jeff Passan over at ESPN, I've, I've gone back and forth with him on Twitter about different issues. And I said, if it's really good, maybe these guys will take a bite of it. They'll give you a shot. So Jason stayed up very late writing it on Friday night. You know, uh, just the high notes of the story. We don't need to get into it that much. People can read it up on ConnectDetrimental.com. But it's a story about a manager of a double-A baseball team allegedly sexually harassing a 25-year-old autistic bat boy on the team. It's a really dark story, but there's a lot to it, right? Omar Vizquel is not, by, by no means, he has a history of, of some of this stuff. He was fired from the White Sox organization reportedly as a result of this incident. And now two years after that you know, reported firing, we're understanding a little bit about what it is. So we put the story out in early Saturday morning, and then we let the word know to The Athletic, to different reporters around the country, to USA Today. I reached out to, to Bob Nightingale, ESPN. And all of a sudden, Dan, ESPN.com reports, as first reported by Conduct Detrimental. Do you know how many followers we got from that shout out by Jeff Passan? We got a lot, Dan. And not only did we get a lot of followers, we got a lot of credibility. We just broke our first national, national story. Cleveland Guardians is not a national story. This is a national story being covered by national media. How about that, Dan? How about that? Well, I, I think the, the don't sell the Guardian story short. I think that was a national story in terms of interest. It may have the locus of it may have been within Cleveland, but I think it got a lot of attention nationally. I think that's listen for you and me, for people like us who are so like you know passionate about like our, our writing and our analysis and breaking stories. The gold standard isn't like people retweeting or liking it. It's when you see the story be picked up by a national, you know, writer or by a national website. I mean, I, I can think of some, you know, stories in the past where Chris Mortensen or Peter King weighed in, and it's like, wow, that meant more to me than the number of re retweets or likes. And 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 think about someone like Jason, who's still in law school, Oxford has law now been credited. Oxford. I, I he and I share the same alma mater, although probably about thirty years apart. We didn't cross over at all. Uh, I think many of my teachers are now deceased. But, you know, for someone, you know, for, for anyone who's starting out in sports law to have your work cited and credited by Jeff Passan on, on ESPN or be picked up by any national outlet, that is very heady stuff. It's more rewarding than any amount of money you're going to get paid to write the article or any, you know, engagement on social media that, I mean, that stays with you forever. And, and it does more importantly, from, from his perspective, I'm putting myself in his shoes. If that doesn't motivate you to keep doing what you're doing, you've missed the signal. The signal is that this is so intoxicating that once you get a taste of it, there's no turning back. And I think Jason, if he doesn't have the motivation before, and I know he does, this is intoxicating. What? There's no turning back. You know what? But this is, it's funny. I don't know if people are following what we post online. This is actually like the second or third one that Jason's nailed with this. You got Mike Florio over a pro football talk to report a story that he found on Kenny Galladay. One yep. uh, with an MMA fighter as well. But, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't stress this more, more enough. Like we are lawyers, right? There are journalists and no, no, no you know, all due respect to journalists, we are the lawyers that should be covering the story. And when we created ConnectDetrimental.com, Dan and I go on shows around the country. There is an appetite for, for lawyers to report these stories. And guess what? Like, we're a sports law website. There is no, I'm not aware of any other website that is sports and law. Dan, I know you want to brand us as business, but like, 
there is no one that does the, this intersection that, that that is a full website that just does this. So I, I am in love with it. When, let me just say one one more thing is this quick shout out to Jason. I mean, listen, and I want to give a shout out also to Jessica Shaw, who wrote an article for our Evander Kane podcast. I mean, Jason's writing the story at, at Friday night because he thinks about this. Like he's writing a Friday night. Obviously, you know, I, I'm sure you got better things to do on Friday night. But he said, you know what? This story could be very big. Jessica Shaw wrote that story for um, on Evander Kane, wrote it on Saturday night and made some corrections on Sunday morning. Like, I don't, this is all I think about, Dan. I think about sports all, all the time. It's not an act. Like, this is really, literally all I think about. And if you want, Dan, just like you're saying, if you want to be ahead of a story, 12 hours ahead of a story, you know, you got to kind of put the work in, but it pays off yeah. huge in huge levels. So now Jason, you know, when he applies to jobs at some point in time, right, if he wants to leave us at Garagos and Garagos, it's not that I want Jason to leave, but he can go out and say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm less than 25 and I've been cited by ESPN, Bleacher Report, and The Athletic. That is an incredible thing to say in an interview. I don't think there's- Mike Florio and Mike Florio. Listen, there's, yeah, there's more than just an appetite for this information, this insight. There's a need for it. If you go through the leading stories on ESPN's you know, headlines, just the leading stories in the sports industry for the off the field related stuff, all of it has a, a, an interlay with the, with the law. And it's no accident. I mean, there's a reason why you and I you know, are often- uh, quoted in, 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 in newspapers or, or interviewed on radio shows. There is a need, a, a perpetual need for legal analysis and commentary to shed light on some of these off the field stories and make sense of the, of the legal ramifications for what's taking place. And so many of these stories arise out of, out of you know, lawsuits and court battles. And you have to have the fire in your belly to really do this. It takes wanting to give up your Friday night or Saturday night because you're hungry to kind of break this story. You're hungry to analyze the issue. And just like people like Darren Ravel became really big in their profession from hard work and from volunteering and by hustling for, vir for virtually little to no money early in their careers, this is why someone like Jason will ultimately be successful, you know, if he stays with this, because if you have the passion for sports law, this is a natural outgrowth out of that. It's not work. It's never been work for me. So listen, we will get into it, but just shout out to Jason. Yep. But the point is that Jason is yep. a Jason and I'm, I love Jason. I speak to Jason all the time. Who is Jason? Jason is some random law student at Hofstra who was just really hungry to, to get his name out there. And guess what? It's working. So, you know, Jason, about two months ago, uh, you know, didn't have anything. And now he just said, I, I want to really publish this. So anyway, but that's why part of the reason we published kind of potential for these sports law stories. Now, Dan, watch, watch this one. This is number two. There's a world where this story is even bigger than Jason's story. And I, I don't want anybody to compete. I'm just saying we, I'm so, it warms my heart that we provided a platform that I can even potentially give you a story that's as big as Jeff Passan shouting out a law student. And Jason, obviously, I don't know, Dan, maybe maybe it's different eras. I mean, it's cool that Jeff Passan shouted out, but Jason's like followers count just like blew up on Twitter. Now all of a sudden, Jason can write in his byline, cited by ESPN, The Athletic, and Bleach Report. So that's no small chunk of change either. Now, this one I really, really liked. So Kate Rosenberg is a uh, law student at Texas A&M Law School. This is her second story. We'll call this the Simone Biles story. Kate Rosenberg reached out to me. She has her own blog. She's another really just hungry law student, has a blog called Sports Law Girl. She reached out to me when we made our initial dot-com uh, announcement. And she said, is it okay? I have my own blog. Can I post the story on your account and my account? And I said, well, why don't you give it to me? I'll clean it up because I, I kind of have some kind of a sense on what the title should be in pictures. 
and then just take exactly what we post and you can post on your blog. It's totally fine. You don't need to give us attribution. I just, I want more people to see your name and I think I can get a lot of eyeballs on this. So she said, great. So we were talking about what topics and she goes, I really want to write something on Simone Biles. I stand with Simone Biles. Now this is Kate saying, I'm a big fan of Simone Biles. So I, I said, you know, why don't you, you know, maybe there's an article to write about, you know, people kind of pulling Simone Biles in one direction and not because she has this whole, you know, some, there was an issue about mental health. And I go, I don't know, just write it. I don't know if it's that legal, just write it and I'll figure out how to way to turn it into sports law. Just trust me. So Kate writes this great article and it's about Simone Biles, mental health, people kind of judging her and they shouldn't be, people should kind of take a step back. It's a really good article. So Kate and I work together and this is our promise to you a conduct detrimental. I will work with you and I will, I will, first of all, we'll make, we'll make it a little bit better because we're editors here and then we'll get it to where it needs to go and we'll promote it to, so it gets to people that we don't even know we're getting to. So the unfair prosecution of Simone Biles. And I'm like, put Simone Biles in the title. That's what I want you to do. And prosecution is enough legal, we'll get the hook. And it's not really the most legal article, we'll get the hook in. So Dan, we published that on conductdetrimental.com. We posted on the Instagram. Kate posted on her Instagram. She's all excited to tell people that she posted an article about Simone Biles. Dan, guess who likes the post? Guess who reads the article? Take a wild guess. Olga Corbett? That is so far from the correct answer, it is not funny. Simone Biles, the Simone Biles, Instagram verified, 7 million followers, the Olympian, while she's at the effing Olympics, while she's about to win a bronze medal, she takes the time to read this article and like it. it it's an article and I, and I love pumping Kate up. Kate is someone just like Jason who put themselves out there. You and I, Dan, I, not that, you know, like our, I have a lot of stuff that I don't love about, you know, like uh, the day-to-day -day grind, but like, we found ways to get into sports law. We both wrote. And, you know, you got to put yourself out there in some way. Kate started a blog, Sports Law Girl, and found a way to, to reach Simone Biles and put an Instagram post up that found Simone Biles. And uh, I posted the success story on LinkedIn. And the success story alone was seen by tens of thousands of people. So I, I give Kate all the credit in the world. The article, again, the unfair prosecution of Simone Biles is up on the website. So, Dan, one and two. Jason being shouted out by every single national platform, his handle tagged, and Kate getting a like from uh, Simone Biles. I, I don't know. Those, those just warm my heart that we can pull that off. Yeah, it's good news, and it's a good auspicious start for the Conduct Detrimental website. I mean, to, to think of all that we've accomplished, this band of sports law you know, followers and, and, and people who are passionate about sports law, this community has generated like independent journalism enterprise journalism, investigative journalism. We're all doing this and it's so exciting and I, and I can't wait to see what the future brings, but onward and upward to the actual stories themselves. What do we have for the week ahead, Dan? I think there is some massive news. You are the sports betting guru. Let's just spend the rest of the episode talking about sports betting. How about that? Sure, and, and let me just give a, a brief endorsement of Ryan's work. If you're following the growth and expansion of legalized sports betting throughout the United States. For, in my book, Ryan is the number one person following the industry, writing about the industry. He's the hardest working person in sports betting legislation, writing for the Action Network, multiple stories seemingly every day, does a really good job of distilling the legislative and political into something that the general reader can understand. And, and he's usually first on breaking a lot of the news in the sports betting legislative world. He's certainly one of my favorites. And I'm excited about talking to Ryan about what could be the biggest legal story in the sports betting world, which is the validity of the Florida Gambling and Sports Betting Compact, which is a, an agreement 
that the state of Florida has made with the largest tribal nation in the country, the Seminole tribe of Florida. If this compact survives legal challenges, it could catapult Florida to become the number one state for online sports betting in the country. Yet there's a big if, which is the prospect and the, and the actuality of some legal challenges that will look to pare back the compact or invalidate it. So there's a lot that's going to be taking place over the next couple of weeks and months. And Ryan and I, with your assistance, are going to break it down for our audience and really get into the really core issues of this federal court litigation and, and how it could impact sports betting, not only within Florida, but nationwide for other Indian tribes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get into it. And I think, you know, before we before we go to Ryan, just to kind of put a pin in our, our conversation, we have, Dan, have found this niche right at this, and we don't just say it, to say it, like the niche of sports and law, I have a feeling you're going to drop some nuggets in here that people that are actually involved in this case are going to be listening to. So listen, Steemus Bar Review was, was smart enough to come out and reach out and say they want to be a part of the podcast because obviously... Themis just knows what's up. They obviously are at the pulse of all of this stuff. But, you know, I'm going to say, Dan, if there are any other, the version of Themis of sports betting or the version of Themis that want to uh, just uh, get get all these fun eyeballs, they're more than welcome to. But listen, Themis oh. is the gold standard right now. Themis is like my best friend, that, that they listened to our prayers and they answered them. And they said, you know what? We just want to sign this long-term deal with you because you guys are smart lawyers and we're a bar review company. And it just makes so much sense, this marriage. Well, I'll tell you what, if you sign up with Themis and listen to the discussion with Ryan Butler, I can guarantee you, you'll know enough about federal court practice and civil procedure because our conversation with Ryan, we're going to cover issues such as Article 3 standing, motions for preliminary injunction, temporary restraining orders. We're going to be talking about the path of federal court litigation. And you and I you know, are litigators by training, and this is right in our wheelhouse. We're about to enter what is an accelerated path of litigation compressed over the next couple of weeks, which could determine the future of legalized sports betting within the state of Florida. And it's, it's all going to play out in a federal court. So I'm really excited about this conversation in particular because it's right in my practice area strength, right in my wheelhouse. And if you're a big fan of civil procedure, which you know everybody in our audience is, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. If and when they put sports betting on the bar exam, we are preparing you guys. Us and Themis, shake and bake, Themis. With that said, let us turn it over to Ryan Butler. Our next guest probably knows the capital of all 50 states in the United States. Well, at least the ones that have passed sports betting legislation or introduced sports betting legislation. He is the sports betting legislative reporter for the Action Network since May 2018. He's been covering sports betting legislation since the fall of PASPA, which is a great sense of timing on his part. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental, Ryan Butler of the Action Network. How are you, Ryan? Good, Daniel. Glad to be here. And man, of all days, this is one of the most important. So excited to be able to talk to you. Yeah, it's going to be a very frenetic week, I think, for the state of Florida and sports betting within the state of Florida. This past Friday, the United States Secretary of the Interior, or at least the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, allowed the compact between the state of Florida and the Seminole Tribe of Florida to basically be approved through a quote-unquote no-action approval. Can you kind of dive into what this entails and what exactly happened on Friday, what's included, what's not included, and where the story is likely to be headed from here? 
Definitely. And I think for all your listeners to understand, kind of tease a little bit, there could be some nationwide impacts from this deal. But let's just start off with Florida, which in and of itself is just a huge accomplishment with just the Seminole Gaming Compact. At the highest level, what this means for Florida is the Seminole Tribe will pay the state $500 million a year for at least the next five years, probably exceed that total for the next 25 after that. A 30-year deal with a lot of money coming back to the state of Florida. In exchange, the Seminole Tribe has exclusive rights to a bunch of different types of games. One of those will be roulette, one of those will be craps, and another one included in this will be sports betting, which in itself we can dive into a little more specifically there. So with that, it also allows the paramutual uh, facilities, which in Florida include horse tracks, they include these different poker rooms, they include these different uh, highlight frontons, different things like that. They will be allowed to offer certain games that have been uh, years of litigation between the tribe and these entities. They'll be allowed to continue. And again, gives the Seminoles exclusive rights to sports betting here. Uh, a lot of stuff moving with it. Now, there were also other things that were not allowed with it. There was an idea that there could be third-party partnerships between big sports books like DraftKings and FanDuel could then partner with those paramutual facilities. What we can look at from the decision or lack thereof of the Interior Department is those are not going to be endorsed. So it does not appear that those will be allowed to continue. However, maybe even more importantly, the Seminole Tribe is allowed to launch online sports betting. This is a momentous ruling that impacts potentially hundreds of other tribes that they were given under this the interpretation of the Feder of IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, has now expanded to include online gaming. So there again, Dan, we're going to get into more of what's what's going on with that. But sports betting, at least in Florida, as agreed to by this compact, looks like it can continue online off reservation, which is a big deal. Well, let's focus on that for a second, because that's sort of the nub of the story and the legal battles that are going to ensue moving forward. We're going to focus on the sports betting piece of the compact approval, and in particular, the off-reservation aspect of the sports wagering. Uh, I believe that the compact that the state of Florida has agreed to with the Seminole Tribe allows for casinos you know, on tribal land and also for on-reservation sports books. Those are not in controversy. What is in controversy is this notion that you can include within a tribal gaming compact gambling activities that undoubtedly emanate off of tribal lands. Two of them in particular stand out. One is online sports betting statewide. And the second tranche of that would be wagering on sporting events from paramutual facilities located throughout the state. These are horse tracks, dog tracks, high life facilities, all of which are going to be under seminal tribal control under the fiction that all of this occurs on Indian land. And this is a very critical, I guess, phrase because the statute that covers or the statute that authorizes tribal gaming compacts for class three games, such as sports betting, specifically limit that activity to gambling that occurs solely on Indian lands and nowhere else. Uh, I know the answer, but can you explain to our audience how the Seminole Tribe and the state have engineered a solution to the statutory restriction that the gambling has to take place on Indian lands and why that's so important and how, if at all, that differs from what New Jersey, New York, Michigan, West Virginia, and Rhode Island are doing? Yeah, so a lot into that, Daniel. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm uh, the perfect law school professor. Yeah. Multi-part final exam question. Sorry, Ryan. Uh, no, the, the Seminole Tribe in uh, Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis, the proponents of this compact, cited that New Jersey model 
New Jersey has constitutional restrictions on gambling outside Atlantic City. To get around that, they deemed that if the servers, the internet servers were placed in Atlantic City, that could supersede that prohibition. That's what allows, under New Jersey law, these commercial casino entities to allow online casino gaming and online sports betting anywhere in the state. That has never been approved or used previously by a tribal entity. You mentioned Connecticut, Michigan, Arizona. All three of those states have created separate, independent, travel-run digital sports books, but are subject to commercial regulatory structures. They, for all intents and purposes, are commercial, even though they are tribal. It's governed slightly differently than under federal law. Florida had tried something that had never previously been done. And this time, the Interior Department and the Division Department of Indian Affairs decided that it did. Their reasoning in a letter published on Friday was as gaming develops, as things evolve, the idea, the, the spirit of the law behind IGRA, that federal law was to allow tribes, sovereign tribes, uh, extended rights. And so their argument was things have changed, uh, gaming is changing. So as long as you do that same deal, the servers have to be on the Indian lands. But as long as you do that, as long as you agree to a deal with the governor, as long as you deal with stuff like that, you now, the logic behind it has changed for the first time since 1988 when that law was passed. So that is a huge momentous thing. I think from the macro level, this now it doesn't mean that every tribe can now start opening online sports books, but it gives more, I would say, leeway to tribes in other states who say, hey, Florida did it. We should be able to do the same thing here. And one final note on all that is online casino gaming is a little different in Florida because that was not included in the compact. The tribe had originally sought that, but Florida lawmakers decided not to, or the, you know, the governor, so they struck that out. So it's now for now just online sports betting, but theoretically a tribe now would have an argument, I'd say, in a different state, oh, we want online casino, oh, as long as we get the deal done, we can do it. So that's why that's okay. so important. I know Dan wants to jump in. I want to I want to circle back when Dan's finished and, and, and kind of get into Brian Newland. He's the, the, the secretary of the interior of the Department of the Interior who drafted the lengthy analysis that was included in the letter. But Dan, jump in for a moment. Well, We're going to come back to have, Brian Newland in a moment. The, you guys are having all the fun here. There, there, there is some stuff that you guys are just like, yeah, no big deal. 500 million a year for 30 years. You guys just say that. It's like, oh, yeah, no big deal. 500 million a year for 30 years. Let's let's take a step back. That is a staggering amount of money to go to a state. So, I mean, last I checked, right, five hundred million dollars. That's uh, probably more than anybody's winning in the lottery after taxes. So let's let's like, you know, I think we got to take a couple levels back here. Right. This is a monster, monster deal. And Dan and I have obviously been on the podcast for a while talking about what is going to expedite sports betting bills being passed in states across the country. Now, one of them is, I'm saying, certainly pandemic-related, that there's just a loss of funds in different states, and they need to find a way to make it up. I can't imagine a better way to make it up than by getting $500 million a year for 30 years. Ryan, did I hear that correctly? $500 million a year for 30 years, and then there's more on top of it? Yeah, possibly. So, yeah, that's why I lead with, I think, for average average person who's maybe not uh, just a casual sports betting legal analyst, that's the highlight there. Um, 500 million, but there's two big caveats with that. One is that's not just sports betting. Most states are not going to be able to generate 500 million a year just from sports betting. This is a little bit different. It's a tribal deal. It includes the money from slots and includes things like that. Um, it's also worth noting that um, this, the Florida government and the tribe had a previous compact deal 
uh, because of some questions around these different gains that were offered at the paramutual facilities, and Sentinel Tribe had suspended its payments. So it had been paying the state $0 a year. So you get the 500 million a year more, which is you know a political win for Ron DeSantis, the governor, um, things like that. So you know all that tied into it. And then um, secondly, it's also $500 million a year is of course 500 million, that's a lot of money. It's also keeping in mind that the Florida budget is typically a hundred billion a year. So okay. 500 million, yeah, it's a lot. That's all, you can do a lot of good things with it. But again, Florida is a hundred billion. And for example, New York state, which is a whole different, that's a podcast in and of itself, a whole different thing. They are also targeting this $500 million a year mark. Their budget is over 200 billion a year. So it's just, it's just always keep things in perspective. It's both a lot of money and then it's also a little bit of money. One quick follow then, Dan, I'll let you get back to the kind of high level stuff. But I think there, there's another part of this that I find very fascinating. I guess, number one, what you just said, I go to the casino, sometimes I lose some money. I don't really think about it. It is a staggering amount to think that 500 million Joe Schmoes like me are contributing to this, this amount of money. So I guess that's, that's number one. But number two, you said something really fascinating. And then, Dan, I'll, I'll give it back to you. The Seminole Tribe is going to get exclusive rights to roulette, craps, and sports betting. I heard that correctly? Yep and the right to build four additional casinos at their Hollywood tribal property. So you could say a hundred million and it sounds like a lot of money, but when you consider that the tribe had, under the last compact were paying close to $300 million a year, 500 million for four casinos, statewide exclusivity to online sports betting, statewide control over retail sports betting, roulette and craps. I don't know if 500 million is gonna be anywhere near the same kind of value that was provided under the 2010 compact because you throw out a number like 500 million and it's like, whoa, this is like, we're, we're, we're like, you know, we're, we're flushing money. I think the deal is probably not as lucrative as it could have been if you were to break out each of those component parts and create separate compacts around each of those individual items. I think it's sort of the, the you know, it is a lot of money, but it is not relatively the same as the value that was being generated under the prior compact. And, and also just on top of that, uh, Daniel, you, a lot of lawmakers during this process questioned it. It's also 30 years, which is very lengthy for a compact like this. And also one other thing, they have the exclusive right to blackjack as it's the traditional form. There's some discrepancies with that. They also have almost the exclusive rights with a few exceptions to slots, which are the most important thing for a casino. That's where it makes its most gaming revenue. Um, but yeah, the, the, not only are those four new casinos, the there's two flagship uh, casinos for anyone outside of Florida, one in Tampa and one in Hollywood, which is near Fort Lauderdale, South Florida. But the Tampa facility alone is the most lucrative casino in America already that is without sportsbook, that is without crafts, that's without roulette. And that's with some, you know, different things. It's just, it's incredible. So Wait, it is, again, another context that money. There's a casino, in, there's a casino in Tampa that is the most lucrative in the country. Most lucrative in the country. Yeah. I would have thought that would have been Vegas, but this is why you guys are the experts. Okay, Dan, I'll see the Mr. <laughs> sports betting. The Vegas right. ones have to compete with each other. The Seminole Hard Rock, and I live in Tampa, the Seminole Hard Rock in, in Tampa doesn't have any competition right. for, I think, 100 miles in any direction. Well, Tampa Bay Downs, thoroughbred horse racing, but South Florida, you yeah. have the Hollywood Hard Rock that is surrounded by, I think it was about eight racinos in, in, in Miami-Dade County and Broward. So there's much more racino slash casino competition in the South Florida market than there is in you know Central and Northern Florida. So I think that explains why the, the Tampa yeah. Hard Rock stands alone as the most lucrative casino in the country. I want to get back 
to Brian Newland's letter, I read all of these headlines. You know, federal government, feds clear sports betting to start on October 15th, as if Secretary Newland's letter would be the last and final word on it. I want to talk about who Brian Newland is. And it's not as momentous for me that the former chair of the Bay Mills Michigan Tribal Casino signed off on an agreement to allow tribes to operate online sports betting. He did it through a no action approval, yet nonetheless included 12 pages of analysis, even though he didn't make an affirmative decision one way or another. So two questions, Ryan, what do you make of the the non-decision decision backed up by 12 pages of analysis? And do you think his role as a tribal leader may have influenced him? to look at tribal interests rather than uh, even-handedly apply federal law because his role as the undersecretary of the Department of the Interior is to act on behalf of the federal government, not to act on behalf of any particular tribe or tribal interests. So what do you make of his dual role and past as well as the necessity or lack thereof for an analysis behind a no action approval? I'll do the second one first speaking with a lot of, of tribal gaming officials since under the Biden administration, um, under Secretary Deb Hallon, there was a lot of optimism. She was the first Native American woman, uh, cabinet approved, first one to run the Interior Department. There was a lot of very bullish, optimistic, this would be very favorable for the tribes, a lot of optimism from a lot of tribal officials. Ultimately, that department, you know, they, I don't know if she had the final, she didn't write that analysis, but I think that sort of made me inclined even though there was a lot of questions about the actual law itself. Then I deal a lot with just the politics and I can see this happen. A law is what you say it is. And two reasonable people can disagree on a law and it depends on how it's interpreted. So even though by the letter of the law, it doesn't seem to fit, their clearly argument was the spirit of the law that's going to allow this to continue. So that in itself isn't shocking that it would be something that this is very, very favorable for the Seminoles in almost every possible way. So that in itself is not surprising that an official with strong travel background, with strong travel gaming background, would then be inclined to have a very favorable interpretation of a law that would benefit another tribe. When you're dealing, and, and you've been all around the country, you've seen Governor Cuomo strung on the legislature into you know, basically uh, bending them to his will. Same thing with Governor DeSantis in, in, in Florida. The law, at least for sports betting legislation on the state level, when you have some of these hypothetical legal obstacles, the law is whatever somebody wants it to be. Exactly. And, and exactly. Uh, that's the perfect way to say it. It's what, the, it's what they want it to be. Yeah. And, and just as the New York legislature authorized daily fantasy sports contests against the background of potential constitutional issues, that was called into question and is now subject to litigation. The New York sports betting law, the mobile sports betting law, could very well itself at some point be subject to litigation. But we know at this point, with respect to Florida, this is a matter that is already in litigation. One month ago, in early July, Magic City Casino and the Bonita Springs Poker Room, both owned by the Havanick family in South Florida, preemptively filed suit to challenge the compact as improperly authorizing off-reservation sports wagering in violation of IGRA. It was preemptive in the sense that they filed the suit before the Department of the Interior had signed off on the lawsuit. It could be, at least in my view, 
the first of several lawsuits that have filed challenging this compact. Have you heard anything about what other potential plaintiffs may come forward and, and challenge the compact? Can you can you you know enlighten us on, on what you're hearing uh, about the the next you know shoe to drop? One of the big things we're looking at is this group called No Casinos in Florida, which has been very outspoken against really anything. Now, they are not necessarily opposed to tribal gaming law, something like this, but there might be concerns about the overarching aspects of it. Again, the online components potentially. Is there, you know, do they have standing as a question? Things like that we get into. But there is a very strong anti-casino group, hence the name No Casinos with it. So I look out for that. There's also one of the things I'm, I'm curious about and we're following is in 2018, uh, the Florida Constitution was amended that prohibited lawmakers from approving or really taking up gaming law without a voter approval. Now, there's a lot of argument, and, and Dan, you've been one of the leaders on this about what that does actually encompasses. It's not gambling expansion. It's non-voter approved authorization of quote unquote casino gambling. And I think the the, the mis misnomer, the misunderstanding is that it's it's viewed by many improperly as a prohibition against any type of gambling expansion. And it's much narrower than that. And this, this no casino group is the sponsor, or at least the proponent right. of Amendment 3, which created Article 10, Section 30 of the Florida Constitution and, and enshrined in Florida's Constitution a ban on non-voter approved casino gambling. So Sawinski and, and the no casino entity are going to travel down that path and try to make the argument that mobile wagering and off-reservation sports betting occurs off tribal land and it's a violation of the state constitutional prohibition against casino gambling, at least non-voter approved casino gambling. And I've told John this in the past, I think the low-hanging fruit is the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act because if you prove that it's gambling off of tribal land, you win the lawsuit under IGRA. That, you know, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act has at its core a requirement that all of the gaming activity take place on Indian land. If you can prove that under federal law, this is a non-Indian land gaming activity, you win the case. You invalidate that part of the compact. Yet John and, and no casinos is seemingly like obsessively focused on the Florida Constitution, which is essentially having to prove two things that it's one off Indian land and then two that it's casino gambling in violation of the state constitution. So I've always questioned why they want to sort of increase the level of difficulty when you only need one of those to win. Absolutely. But it's, it's signing what you're saying with it, Dan. I just think, as we know, this is an argument they've made in the public and we've seen the law is what people want it to be. Does it does it win? Um, especially when you have a Florida government clearly wants this, the Seminole tribe clearly wants this. Is that going to win with the, 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 the Amendment 3 thing? I, I mean, who knows, but it's, it's it seems legally tenuous. But I also, you think a couple months ago, wouldn't you say that the law IGRA would have prohibited this online, this very friendly online ruling for the tribe? So again, a law is what you say is, I think what we know for certain is that there is going to be some challenges to it. You brought it up earlier. This is, and I, we kind of, at the Action Network, we sort of, you know, hyped it and, and all that. There's no guarantee that this will not, there might not be there. If there is an injunction, if there's something that could prohibit this from launching October 15th, those paths are not completely clear. There are hurdles in the way. What are those going to look like? How are those going to hold up? We don't know. 
but they are going to be there. It is not a full done deal yet. This is where it gets interesting from a legal perspective outside of the actual just pure legislative or sports betting perspective, right? So this is not by all means a, a done deal. There are people that are trying to challenge that could file injunctions to, to kind of go after this. So you mentioned two of them. And Dan, I, I, don't, I wanna make sure we don't kind of gloss over this. There's a part that kind of, I don't know, subconsciously or maybe just conscious doesn't really make that much sense, right? Just the servers being located on tribal land, right? Like we talked about in New Jersey, you know, obviously that's what they're trying to go for in Florida. But my question to you guys, right? And you guys are the experts here, at least in most legal contexts, what Jersey does is not going to be binding on what Florida does. It's persuasive precedent to some extent. Do we relitigate that issue all over again? Are we starting kind of anew in Florida or they just adopt that as is? Well, that's a great question. It raises several, you know, related questions. One is what another state does, is what the state of New Jersey does, is what Rhode Island or what New York does. Does that have any bearing right. on how federal law should govern, you know, off-reservation gaming? Does one affect the other? And, and I might add that the very few states that use the uh, concept of a server to determine the location, none of those states have has ever had their sports betting or iGaming structure challenged in a lawsuit. And that's a very important caveat that just because Michigan, Rhode Island, West Virginia, New Jersey, and New York do it, doesn't mean that it complies with state law, much less federal law. And there is a distinction between treating a bet as equivalent to a contract under state law versus trying to determine what constitutes Indian lands on federal law. Wagering transactions are akin to contracts under state law. And the reason why several states such as Michigan, New Jersey, and soon New York are able to use the server location as the exclusive location of where the bet takes place is that that follows the use of a wager or the equating of a wager to a contract. And a contract is deemed to be made at the time and place of acceptance. That's how state law has historically worked with regard to treating wagering transactions as quote unquote contracts. Federal law is a different analysis. Federal law, and in particular, several cases have rejected the use of state law contract principles to determine the location of the bed. And the very few cases that have weighed in on internet wagering or the use of telephones outside of Indian lands to, to, to consummate or initiate wagers, those judicial decisions emanating out of federal courts have, have, have rejected the notion that the uh, location of computer equipment or a server on Indian lands uh, deems the bet to take place on Indian lands. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of case law on that subject, but every case that has addressed that, the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in the Desert Rose case, the Southern District of California, the lower district court in that same case, and even the National Indian Gaming Commission in some advisory opinions, every prior interpretation of where internet wagering fits in within the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, a consensus has emerged that gambling over the internet is not considered to take place exclusively within Indian lands. And there could be a legal problem under federal law that does not exist under state law. So this, this is why I don't want to bury the lead here, right? We're, we're saying that there are challenges. I'm listening to you, Dan, as if I was someone thinking of challenging this, this bill, right? Don't, don't assume that what happens in New Jersey and other states is going to fly in Florida. So that's to, right. Just to point it out here, like, I mean, and again, just for, for people that aren't, maybe aren't necessarily into the, into the sports betting space, I was in West Virginia somewhat recently. I placed a bet at the window. So that's uh, great. I placed a bet at the window. Congrats. 
if I was able to in anywhere in the state of, and uh, I was at the Greenbrier. I don't know if you guys know Greenbrier. Yeah. But I could be anywhere in the state. And at least according to Florida, right? Like if you're going to adopt the this compact, I can make a bet anywhere. And because the server takes place, you know, the server exists on Indian land, like that's fine. It's a totally separate thing for me to have to drive in my car and get all the way to a particular casino. So you stand to make a lot more money under that particular interpretation. Now, my, my question to both of you guys, actually, I'll, I'll phrase it to Ryan because you're our expert here. We want to want to make sure like this, this hangs up. I, I don't know the answer to this. Let's say a court wants to redline that particular rule. They say, well, you can have sports betting, but it has to actually occur in person. We don't, we don't want you to have any and all type of mobile bets. Now, does the whole deal fall apart or can they just redline one particular aspect of it? So I'm, and I'll have, I might have to defer to Daniel on this too. From the compact itself, the language with it was under the federal ruling. Had the Interior Department stricken out certain parts, the rest was allowed to stand. A severability clause with it. If there is a, a court ruling, I, I'm not exactly sure. You know, if they could, if they could kind of um, line item veto certain things in a political sense. Daniel, do you have any more insights on what a federal or uh, a court decision might look like yep. on the compact itself? Yeah, the compact has a severability provision that is triggered only on a court ruling, not on a blue penciling by the Department of the Interior. The reason why the a court ruling was used as the sort of the trigger event is because typically it's not 100% the case, but typically compacts are approved or disapproved in whole, not as frequently in part, although I have found examples, uh, several examples, where the Department of the Interior blue penciled certain components out of the compact rather than go up or down entirely within the compact. So the, the compact does have a severability clause that strikes out the invalid parts of the compact and provides for the non-violative portions of the compact to survive, provided it does not undermine the overall intent for the parties having entered into this contract. And, and this really brings back what is the overall structure of this sports betting framework? It's a hub and spoke system. A hub and spoke system in which the Seminole tribe is the hub and the paramutual facilities are themselves the spokes. Well, I submit that if you remove the spokes because paramutual housed sports wagering takes place off of tribal land, you no longer have a spoke in the hub and spoke system and all you're left with is a hub. And I would argue that leaving only the hub in place would violate the overall intent of the compact, which would be to provide a broad level of participation by Florida's paramutual operators. And if you strip them out of the compact, you're really frustrating the overall design of the compact. I mean, there are arguments both ways. And I think the, the, the intent of the state and the, and, the, and the Seminole tribe was to strip away those parts that violate IGRA and leave in place the portions that are not in violation of IGRA, which when the dust settles, Dan, you could be very well left with uh, roulette, craps, four new casinos on tribal land, and on-reservation sports books. What would be blue-penciled out of the compact would be all of online betting statewide and all wagering that emanates from paramutual facilities. It would essentially live in, leave in place a brick-and-mortar tribal monopoly over sports betting and, and, and really you know, leave out all of the other participants. And that's the real risk for why, or I think that's the downside of, of this compact having survived scrutiny by the Department of the Interior, because if the, if the Secretary of the Interior had rejected the compact, the severability clause would never have been triggered and it would be a mulligan 
and then the state legislature would have to go back to square one during the 2022 legislative session. But now having no action approved the compact, this severability clause can now potentially be triggered and, and create a true tribal monopoly and leave in place nothing for the online sports betting providers and the state licensed power mutual operators who provide or which provide the backbone of gambling in Florida, they'd be left with absolutely nothing, which really is the motivation for why companies like Magic City and Bonita Springs Poker Room and maybe potentially DraftKings and FanDuel might end up litigating this in federal court. And I do have a theory about standing, uh, Ryan. I, I've studied this issue very closely. There is this notion under uh, under Article Three, standing and standing to challenge the Department of the Interior's decision that competitors, potential and actual competitors, have standing to challenge the Secretary of the Interior's approval of a compact, which does create a potential pathway for DraftKings and FanDuel to challenge this in court, in addition to Magic City Casino and Bonita Springs Poker Room. What do you think about the prospect of those two companies stepping up to the fore in litigating this issue? I mean, I mean, there can be no question that they're potential competitors in this. They're all over the online sports betting landscape and they're backing a proposed constitutional amendment to bring online sports betting into the state of Florida. So what do you think about that prospect? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up that that own, we haven't even mentioned yet, they're the DraftKings and FanDuel run separate constitutional amendment. DraftKings and FanDuel clearly are very interested in Florida, as they should be. So they are going to do whatever they can to get in. If one of those is a lawsuit that keeps everybody else out, then absolutely. In the meantime, they are going to be running this parallel track. They've already started it. They've already started their petition drive. In Florida, it'll take about a, a little under 1 million ballot signatures in order to be placed on the 2022 ballot. If that is successful, if it, they get the signatures, if it's approved by the the state regulators and officials to get on the ballot then, and if 60% of voters in Florida, because Florida constitutional amendments now are a 60% threshold, not 50% as in some states, they clear all that, it would open up DraftKings, FanDuel, also some of the only the larger books, the language in it itself, the way it's written, excludes, I believe the, the cutoff is 10 states, I'd have to double check it, but it doesn't, it, it would also limit the number of players that could get in. So that as well. So yes, I think if uh, DraftKings and FanDuel think that uh, financially it makes more sense to pursue the litigation angle, that's absolutely something to look at. In the meantime, they've already spent, I believe 20 million has been filed publicly on this, <laughs> this campaign just for the signature drive. They will be spending much, much more money either through this petition, uh, through lawsuits or whatever else they can do. All we, one of the things we do know is a lot of money is coming in. I, as a Florida resident, I'm expecting a lot of ads in one way or another coming in with that as well. So yes, there, there's just, again, this adds to this, this gumbo of different possible swirling challenges that go into it. And also, Daniel, on that too, I wanted to get pick your brain a little bit. In that letter that was written about the compact, it says, we do not endorse these third-party deals, essentially. Now, is that language definitive? Does that mean, you know, again, they let it stand without action. Is that something that could be used by a DraftKings and FanDuel in a legal challenge? Is that, what exactly does that terminology mean? Everything else seemed to pass with flying colors. It was this that they really said we have an issue with. Well, I think it goes to the 60-40 revenue split and yes. the, uh, the term of the third party deal. The compact provides for the Seminole tribe to enter into commercial agreements with paramutual operators under which the uh, paramutuals would be allowed to keep 60% of the, 
or more of the sports betting related revenue. So it, it, it provides a floor for the paramutuals. And there's a concept under IGRA known as sole proprietary interest. And the National Indian Gaming Commission, and the which is the regulator and the, uh, the, the federal governmental agency under the Department of Interior, which reviews compacts and management agreements, they look at these revenue shares very closely and will reject management agreements that don't leave the tribe in a position of having the sole proprietary interest. And if a compact guarantees the paramutual uh, venue a 60% revenue share of tribal controlled sports betting, clearly under that numeric allocation, the paramutuals are getting the lion's share of the revenues. Maybe not enough to suit the paramutuals, but still more than what would constitute a sole proprietary interest for the tribe. So what the Secretary of the Interior is signaling here is that these third-party agreements might end up becoming the subject of declination letters from the Department of the Interior's NIGC Bureau, which means that what the compact allows may not be approved by the federal government when those third-party agreements are submitted for approval based on the fact that the revenue share leaves the tribes with something significantly less than a sole proprietary interest. So it's really telegraphing the fact that uh, we're not going to approve these third-party agreements. And I believe that that aspect of the DOI's letter buttresses the standing to sue of these paramutual operators, because not only are they actual competitors within the Florida gaming landscape, but they're now potentially going to be cut out of sports betting through the DOI's signal of the fact that we may not even allow you to enter into these agreements. So I think it bolsters the standing of companies like, uh, like Magic City and Bonita Springs. And I'm also very bullish on the standing of DraftKings and FanDuel because they are competitors by virtue of the fact that they've funded a ballot initiative and have already put in $20 million of their own money Jim Allen has admitted during Florida legislative hearings that he's been in discussions with companies like DraftKings, FanDuel, yep. and National about running the sports book. So if those companies are not actual competitors, they certainly rise to the level of potential competitors. And that may be enough to give them standing to sue in federal court. And if DraftKings is already going to put $20 million, if not more on the line, I think they could afford a few million dollars to hire Ted Olson or someone of that magnitude to fight the battle in a different legal front. And also a side note too, your listeners probably might know that Ted Olson is the guy who got PASPA overturned. He is He's kind of a hero in the gambling world. He was one of the guys who argued with it. So that would be a big deal getting him in with it. But yeah, the, the, the language, and I've been reporting this as well. It's not official, but when in a very, and that's 12-page document where the language was very open. It was very favorable to the Seminole Gaming Company. It was very favorable to this expansive idea of, of tribal gaming. The, the, the language was so much more harsher comparatively on these third-party deals. The term used again was we do not endorse it. It's again, setting it up where they're going to hit a hope where those deals are, they're just not approved. I'll use a term that Dan Lust will understand. This is the Montreal screw job of gambling. Do you know what that refers to? The the history of the WWE? Call on me. Call on me. I know. I know. Dan, can, can you give the backdrop to the Montreal screw job and I'll kind of, you know, carry it forward and analogize it to the present day situation? Just like Ryan so eloquently distilled this very complex world of sports betting into about a minute, I'll give you, uh, I'll give it this in a minute. Ready? So back in the day, Vince McMahon's WWE, there's Brett the Hitman Hart. He's got the uh, WWF title belt. 
and he's about to leave to go to the competing company, WCW. You know, they don't know how to do the ending, right? They don't know how to fix it, figure it out. So at the last minute, they're like, eh, we don't really know what to do, Brett. So I guess we'll figure it out in the ring. So what ends up happening is uh, Shawn Michaels, this is actually very relevant legal analysis here. So Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid, puts Brett the Hitman Hart in Brett the Hitman Hart sharpshooter. Brett doesn't know what the finish is going to be. The ref rings the bell. Vince McMahon comes out. Brett the Hitman Hart says he was screwed. Hawks a loogie, hits Vince McMahon in the face, and then Shawn Michaels pretends he doesn't know what happens. And Dan, this is the most important part. I know that's not really the most important part, but allegedly Vince McMahon tried to apologize in the locker room after that, and Brett the Hitman Hart was so angry. He was so angry, and he was about to leave the door. What he did, allegedly, Dan, he winds up, cold cocks Vince McMahon and knocks him out cold. That, Dan, is the Montreal screw. So to, to, to bring it forward to 2021, the Florida paramutual operators are Bret Hart. They were promised something in the compact. I think, I think what they were promised was a lousy deal for them. And that's why Magic City and Bonita Springs have sued. But now they're not even going to get that. And let's get back to Brian Newland for a second. Just imagine, he's the equivalent. If you were to substitute Max Osceola, the chair of the Seminole Tribe of Florida, and you were to install him as the Secretary of the Interior and the Michigan Bay Mills Tribal Nation had a compact that had similar language, how do you think Max Osceola would rule in his capacity as the Secretary of the Interior? This is the ultimate thumb on the scale. Don't you, I mean, I'm not gonna ask you to take a position, but that's how I view it. The, the rubber meets the road when you get into federal court, not before. And again, it's, it's, it is similar. It, it's politics. And it was, again, from the beginning, as soon as it was when Biden won the election, when Hollande was in, you know, announced as a secretary, there was so much optimism from basically across the board from tribal gaming leaders I've spoken with. And again, though, it's, it's, but it's part of what happens. Um, and we look at the Trump administration, a very uh, Sheldon Adelson. Do you think he didn't have a thumb on the scale in, in this really crazy lack of standing lawsuit to try to basically stop online gaming at all. I'm sure you guys have talked about that at nauseum, but there's just, there's things that happen when you have different political administrations, especially at the federal level, it yeah. changes how things are done. And so we went from maybe the most adverse online gambling environment to one that's very, very favorable, at least on the tribal level. Again, it shows the importance of elections. I can talk to you about <laughs> this controversy for hours our podcast, unfortunately, does not last for hours. So I, I want to bring it to a close with, first of all, sports betting is supposed to begin in Florida on October 15th, two months from now. What's going to happen between now and then that could gum up the work, so to speak? I mean, there's going to be court battles. What do you see happening between now and the, the so-called start date? We, we talk about, you know, all the, the different possible groups that have legal challenge. And I, I think an injunction at this point is that could stop it before October 15th is that seems difficult at best. Dan, do you disagree? Do you think that there's a possibility they could get an injunction? I think it's more likely than not that they'll get an injunction. Of, you think of, so? Okay. Yeah, a, motion, a motion for preliminary injunction is sort of a preliminary peek at the merits. It's a vehicle used at the outset of the case to sort of keep the status quo in place pending the outcome of the litigation and the showing of it. It's an extraordinary remedy, but the showing is essentially irreparable harm, a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. So if the, if the plaintiffs are ultimately going to prevail on their legal argument that internet wagering does not constitute betting within tribal lands, mm -hmm. they're going to win that at the end of the case. 
the judge can can address that. It's a pure statutory issue. It's a, it's a pure issue of law. There isn't any kind of factual discovery or depositions to the same extent that the judge could decide that a year from now, a judge can also address that on a motion for a preliminary injunction now at the outset of the case. And I believe the possibility of an injunction or the prospect of an injunction will rise or fall on the likelihood of success on the merits because the other elements are going to be in place. You have irreparable harm through a violation of, of the gambling laws. You have the balancing of the equities, the public interest. Ultimately, if Magic City and Bonita Springs can demonstrate that they're likely to succeed on the merits of the lawsuit at the end of the case, a judge will give them an immediate temporary restraining order and or preliminary injunction, which will preserve the status quo until the case has reached its final conclusion. And I'll go on record right now, Ryan, and you could quote me on this in your Action Network article. I'm of the belief that the percentage likelihood of a preliminary injunction being entered by some federal court is higher than 80%. Wow. Okay. Um, well, thank you for clarifying that. And I guess it's 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 kind of my, my ignorance in this. I almost Everything. feel like it feels like the status quo is that the compact is approved, but it is no, right. no. Status quo is the state of affairs that exists before sports betting is, is implemented. Just, just begin with it. So no, thank you for that. That makes sense with that. I appreciate that. That being said, though, I'm actually probably going to go. I, I, not that I know this as a Florida Gator fan, but we're playing LSU October 16th. I live in Tampa. I fully expect to be at the Seminole Hard Rock in Tampa, being able to place a bet on my Gators on October 16th in person. That I think that is going to continue. And I think if I want to, I'll be able to play craps. And I think I'll be able to play roulette. That I am much more confident in. There, there doesn't seem in any way, um, even again, we, we kind of dismissed a lot of this no casino stuff. But even then, the tribal compacts are supersede that. That's a federal thing. So, you know, that those agreements happen. There's been similar retail-only sports betting deals that have had no issue. That is where it falls in. The question, the most important question to wrap all this up is this online, is this off-reservation, what qualifies under uh, on tribal lands and what's not? That's the that's where we get the bigger issue from. If this was a retail-only deal, brick-and-mortar only, we wouldn't be having a lot of these questions. Like the that. questions are these online. I agree with you on a piece-by-piece, piece, sort of the on-reservation. The on and stuff would seem to be sacrosanct, but isn't all of this integrated? And that's a question, and that's an issue that will be raised by the plaintiffs because certainly they can point to the hub and spoke aspect of this whole system and say you can't have one without the other. So that's something that will uh, obviously be part of their legal argument. But I agree with you. At the end of the day, on October fifteenth, you'll be able to bet on your uh, on your beloved Gators uh, <laughs> at, at the Tampa Hard Rock. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. confident. I'm equally confident that online sports betting will not be implemented in Florida anytime soon. Okay. Well, if I can just make sure that everyone's paying attention, Dan has made a, a giant proclamation, 80% chance, Dan, that the injunction is granted if one is filed, just so we have this clear. Yeah, it, it, here's, why, here's why it's 80 and not 100. Why isn't it, it all 1% though? I'm curious about well, that. It, it, it's all the draw of the judges, just as if, ju just like the, uh, the Seminole Tribe of Florida benefited from the transition in administrations from Trump to Biden, you can never tell or you can never guarantee how a particular U.S. district court judge will rule. 
And depending, I, I don't know much about the judge in this case, he's a former, uh, I think he was with the Florida Attorney General's office, but there could be other judges that are weighing in depending upon who sues and in what judicial districts the lawsuits are brought. But ultimately, I think the U.S. Court of Appeals and, 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 and the, ultimate, the ultimate decision will likely be made by a three-judge panel in either the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals or the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm close to 100% confident that a uh, federal appellate court will conclude that gambling conducted over the internet does not fit within the prism of gaming activity on Indian lands. I'm not equally as confident about how a random U.S. District Court judge would rule, but once it goes up the federal appellate chain, um, I'm, I'm extremely confident that a appellate panel will construe the uh, plain and unambiguous language of IGRA as it was intended to be interpreted, backed by federal court decisional law out of the Ninth Circuit and backed by prior administrative interpretation. So all the precedent, to the extent that there's any precedent, all of it lines up on the side of internet wagering being outside the uh, ambit of gaming activity on Indian land. So 80% at the district court level, close to 100% at the US Court of Appeals level. You hear what that sound is? That's the sound of everyone thinking of challenging this law, writing down your name and number, Dan, because you're going to be getting a lot of calls with predictions like that. Yes, yeah, somebody's got somebody's got to say it. You know, Somebody, somebody's got to speak to us about this stuff. Dan, Dan, they don't call you, and, and Ryan's boss, I don't know if he's Ryan's boss, but Darren Ravel doesn't call you the sports betting guru for, for absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> Ryan, you know, you know what? Uh, we all we all have we all have batting averages, and I'm not a soothsayer or a guarantor of everything. But I think my my record of analyzing legal issues is pretty good. I've been an appellate lawyer for most of my career, and I'm not invested in a particular outcome based upon you know my financial interests. I'm looking at this coldly, objectively, dispassionately through an appellate lawyer's lens. And this is the only outcome that makes any sense to me. Well, Ryan, we, we will keep an eye on it. Dan, obviously, you know, he's putting his, his uh, foot in the sand, as they say, or he's planting his flag. He's pulling a Mark Messier over here, guaranteeing some type of result, which is good. That's why we're here. Ryan, it was our absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, I have a feeling we have not heard the end of this just based on Dan's prediction. <laughs> that I'll guarantee you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. So that was Ryan Butler of the Action Network. You can find him on Twitter at ButlerBets, and you can find his work at the Action Network. Dan, I feel like you emptied the sports betting tank. I am scared to sit, think that there is anything else that you forgot to mention. But dare I say, Dan, is there any, anything else that you guys did not talk about? Any uh, kind of predictions that you did not mention? Well, listen, Ryan and I could have gone on for hours talking about all the moving parts and all the nuances of this looming federal court battle. We couldn't cover it all. Uh, but certainly as we look ahead, this is a story and an issue that we're going to continue to follow and write about on Conduct Detrimental and on our respective Twitter feeds. But certainly in the week ahead, this is this is what's, you know, what I expect to transpire as we as we discussed on the program and on, in the interview with Ryan, uh, there will likely be additional lawsuits filed. We're going to watch those cases. Secondly, these lawsuits don't in and of themselves accomplish anything without a request for judicial intervention. So along with the filing of these lawsuits, what I'm looking for this week is the, the submission of motions for temporary restraining order and, and or preliminary injunction and set the stage 
for hearings in federal court over the next couple of weeks. I predict, or at least I'm, I'm expecting, that the issues that are in play under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act are going to be set up and teed up for a hearing in federal court before the end of August, certainly before the launch date for sports betting in, in Florida, which is October 15th. We're going to be engaged and immersed in, in, in motion practice and injunction hearings where the, the, the ultimate legal issues will probably be resolved and teed up and decided in the early parts of the case. We're not gonna to have to wait for a trial. There's not gonna be any fact discovery. This is not gonna be litigation that lasts for two or three years. This is gonna be a mini trial and a hearing to resolve the legal issues under IGRA. And I would expect August and September to be action-packed with docket activity and hearings and, and, and briefs filed by all the different parties. This is gonna be accelerated litigation that will ultimately resolve whether online sports betting can be included in an Indian gaming compact under IGRA. We're gonna have a sense of the answer sometime before the, the middle of October. So Dan, yeah, we'll obviously keep watching it. I'm, I'm excited that you're making such a bold prediction because uh, I could go one of two ways. Either way, it's good for content because A, I could tell everybody how smart you are, or B, I could tell everybody how dumb the decision is when they lose. So like, I got your back either way, Dan, shake and bake. And, well, Listen, we you can't be afraid to make predictions in this business. One of the things that lawyers often like to do uh, is you know couch their opinions or couch their predictions with all these equivocal words. And well, if this happens, well, if that happens, I have a very strong conviction about this. I could be wrong, but it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It means that another judge, another panel views the issue differently. But I have a very strong sense that my reading of the statutory language in IGRA is the correct way to read it. And it's the interpretation that has been made by other federal courts and other administrative agencies. So I'm not going out on a limb. I'm, I'm actually relying upon the, the plain and unambiguous statutory language and case law. And I think at the end of the day, when all is said and done, online sports betting will probably be enjoined by a federal court. And this is going to throw the issue into a little bit of chaos within the next couple of months. I love it. Okay, so mo moving ahead, what to watch for. I'm still interested to see what goes on in this Cleveland Guardians debacle. I mentioned, uh, I posted today for my uh, New York Law School syllabus, my first class, first time obviously teaching in a sports law. I'm going to have a mock negotiation between lawyers of the Cleveland Guardians and lawyers of the Cleveland Guardians, trying to figure out what exactly went wrong. You know, Josh Gerben, who was on our show last week, it's going to be one of our most downloaded episodes. It went, uh, you know, got picked up a little bit, um, you know, within the baseball world. You know, he he's saying there's a world where the two things coexist. And I saw some people kind of saying, hey, it's, you know, it's interesting. Josh is pointing out that the two, you know, Cleveland Guardians could coexist. And I go, well, that's possible. But Dan, same as you. My prediction is that they do not coexist. I don't think there's a world. I don't think it's possible that ClevelandGuardians.com is owned by anyone else other than the baseball team. We know that Major League Baseball Advanced Media is not in the business of letting people mooch off their brand for free. And I just don't see it. So people can tell me, oh, they can coexist just like the New York Giants and St. Louis Cardinals. I'm sure they could. Um, I just don't think that they will. So, you know, I'll, I'll put my, my foot in the sand there. I think in the next, I don't know, I'd be shocked if, if a year from today at the website clevelandguardians.com was still owned by a roller derby team. That would be the biggest joke of all time. And I, listen, I'm here for it. I'm happy to be wrong because that would make the baseball team look even dumber. So, well, that's why this is the biggest non-story. I mean, it's great for well, you know, initial... It's great for some, you know, initial speculation, but just like, you know, many of these other disputes, they all get settled 
and resolved with the writing of a check. And it simply cannot be that the Guardian roller derby team and the Cleveland Indians are going to be immersed in a multi-year federal court battle. It's never going no, to happen not, at some point. The story is the colossal oversight to announce the name before you have the website. No one has given me an understanding of why that could happen. And you could pay your yeah, way out of it. You could settle the cases, just like Deshaun Watson, I'm sure, is going to settle his case at some point. But the fact that we got here is a story. So, I, but, I, but Dan, that's not an evergreen story. That's a, that's a story in, in, oh, a, in a one-month oh, cycle oh, in 2021. Two years from now, Dan, no one will be talking about that anymore. This will go in the history books as one of the dumbest mistakes a professional baseball team has ever made. Professional sports team has ever made. Up, up there with Cowboys.com, the Dallas Cowboys letting that expire and letting that go to the highest bidder. It's, it's up there with just stupid. Dumbest thing that a baseball team has ever done? How about trading Nolan Ryan? Oh, How about trading the Tom lawyers. Seaver? The lawyers. There is no, they, Dan, there is no historical precedent to, to what happened. But for legal life advice, I wanted to make sure we kind of keep this on the show. Dan, you and I are, you know, I, I get this question maybe three, four times a week in my DMs, be on, on Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter. People ask me, you know, I really want to work in sports law. How did you do it? And I tell them a story that uh, we're not going to get into it. It's just didn't take too long. We'll do it another time. I wrote a story about Kevin Durant, how if he wanted to, he could sue the uh, Golden State Warriors for medical malpractice. And I wrote a really long story. I put it up on my firm blog, which nobody read. I said, you know what? I'm going to market this thing. I want to make sure it gets to enough people. So I told the story back on our Darren Ravel podcast. It got out there. I found Darren Ravel through a contact, and then uh, he helped get it out there. So... How did I get in the sports law world? I wrote an article. That's what I did. Dan, you started writing these sports betting articles for the, for the sports law blog back in the day. My legal life advice, if you want to get into sports law, you need to force your way into the industry. No one's just going to accept you because they think that you like sports. Writing shows that you are a next level person. So I have a friend, Dan, Mike Scott, who now is an attorney for the Washington Nationals. About a year ago, he reached out to me. He goes, how do I get into sports law? I'm like, I don't know, Mike, maybe you should write. He goes, where do I write? And I go, I don't know, write for Fangraph, see if they want to reach out. And Mike, this uh, SOB, started right. he reached out to Fangraph, started writing for them. So Dan, the whole point of the website was to basically help law students create a sports law website. They don't have to reach out to Fangraphs. We're just going to help them do it for them. So my legal life advice for all of the people that are listening to this that want to get into sports law, Writing is your best friend. We will help you get the word out. That's why I wanted to kind of spotlight Kate and Jason. They did it. And, uh, you know, now they have names in the, in, the, in the field. I don't think there's any way around it. Well, somebody who wrote their way into sports law, I can't uh, disagree with anything you've said. You know, Michael McCann followed that path. That was my path. And by, by the way, just, just getting, you know, get, getting into the, the field by writing, it doesn't mean that once you've arrived, you don't have to do that any longer. It keeps getting, uh, it keeps getting more challenging, but certainly I was a, you know, sort of outside the, the, the realm of sports law in 2013 when I started to write incessantly about the uh, movement to legalize sports betting. And I was writing about the New Jersey sports betting case that was my entree into sports betting and, and, and sports law. And without that, I wouldn't be on a podcast today. So for me, per like everybody has a different, you know, story and a different, you know, anecdote or, or, or whatever worked for them isn't going to work for everybody. But I think what we're seeing so far, at least with the initial launch of our website, is that the written word is a very powerful thing to be able to use as a calling card and to express your point of view and to break stories. You don't need a license to break a story. You just need grit 
hard work and put in the time and really be hungry for it. And just like you were hungry and I was hungry, people like, you know, Jason are following the same path. So, you know, I can't give this legal life advice every week because it's going to be the same thing on every episode. So for me, it all comes back to making a dent by using your talents as a lawyer to showcase your skills and your insight and to make a name for yourself. That's how I did it and may not work for everybody, but I think at least objectively, that's the most immediate path for recognition if you're a law student or a young lawyer or even an older lawyer like me. I was 20 plus years into my career. Uh, Dan, I agree with everything you just said. I was a seven-year lawyer that lateraled in. So again, lawyers, law students, anybody, anybody can write. We're happy to. ConnectDetrimental.com. Dan, as always, is at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust, at Sports Law Lust. The show at Con Detrimental. For Dan and myself, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.